I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, quest. Hello there, I am Vic Cohen, and it is always a fair question here on the show, and wow, I am really excited. I have a great friend here. Uh, He's a newer friend, but just immediately hit it off, and I was like, we got to have you in the studio. I mean, because... You're an interesting guy. <laughs> Fascinating, not just interesting. You and, are, uh, you are. Me. I have Josh Peter here. He is the world-famous sports journalist from USA Today. You're world-famous, you know. Well, in certain parts of the world. I've just decided that. Yeah, that right here in the studio, you exactly. are world-famous. Exactly. Uh, you have such a great uh, story, you know, and I'm just, uh, I'm just fascinated by what you do. You know? you. Now, I, first of all, I love that you're a sports reporter because um, studying a lot of your writing, you're kind of a quirky sports reporter. Mm-hmm. You're not like the kind that's just full of just uh, irrelevant kind of like statistics. Like you're more of a guy who likes the quirky story, the offbeat. I'm the, uh, the sports writer. doesn't get a lot of games and uh, not a sports fanatic. I mean, I still appreciate an exhilarating contest and... Um, an event like a boxing match, but I'm much more interested in what's happening in the margins and the underbelly and what just sort of motivates and drives people I'm at. Just the curiosity of it all is much more fascinating for me than um, sitting there in the second quarter and charting baskets and scores well, and so forth. here's the deal with you, okay? You, and, and I mean this with love, um, you're a bit of a nerd. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> Maybe I'm in that sphere. You're you supposed tell to. Me. You're supposed to agree with me and wholeheartedly. You're not. I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, let me ask you this. Let's okay. be totally honest. In gym, you were probably the last guy picked. No, and, not at all. I was a pretty good athlete until about the age of fourteen. Okay, really? What yeah. happened? Um, one, I was a, a late bloomer, and everybody else grew, and I didn't. And two, I fell in love with the sports page, and so my interest shifted from actually playing the game to covering the game and writing. Um, okay. So I can't tell you. I mean, I'm a nerd now, but I grew into the nerd role maybe. But it That's wasn't really always- interesting because I was sure that you were picked right before me, <laughs> that we were the last two. <laughs> I was among the first pick when I was younger, but... Um, what yeah, was my, your sport? I love baseball, soccer. Little league, big little, little league guy? Yeah, big little what, league guy. What position? Shortstop? Pitcher. Pitcher. No, I had to control the game. Pitcher. Was your dad control the coach? Issues. Uh, my dad was in the stands, and okay. um, usually the coach's kid was the pitcher. I, you know, I don't I, know if you noticed that. I battled it out with the coach's kid, but yeah, I, I had my time on the mound, and that was I love to be on the mound. I mean, there you're in the center of the universe of yeah. that game. And so did, you, did you throw like a curveball and like you had a few pitches besides just a fastball? It was mostly fastball, and I think my strikeout to walk ratio was about one to one. I would hit a guy, and then I would strike out the next guy, and then I would hit the next guy. It was the most you know erratic wild pitcher, but it was effective. Isn't it true that like when it comes to print journalists and sports, generally it's those who can't write? Like they say those who can't teach, which I don't really agree with, but like you don't see a lot of uh, pro bowl athletes writing a sports column. Um, you're right. You know, I, I know there are gifted writers. There are more athletes now who are writing, express themselves through the written word. In fact, there's a, a publication called the Players Tribune. I can't remember who started it, but a lot of athletes now are, quote unquote, breaking their stories or publishing their own stories in their own words, as opposed to u- using us as a vehicle. That we're no longer the sole gate, 
the sole gatekeeper? Um, someone, uh, it's totally, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, uh, NBA st former star, I don't know if it's Dr. J, but someone from, uh, he has a time article all the time. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yes, Kareem. Man, the guy can write. Oh, it was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, a fascinating active a smart thinker guy. and phenomenal. phenomenal. Now, being with USA Today, uh, USA Today is kind of, to me, kind of a sexy paper, kind of marquee. Uh, everyone knows it. It's not, you know, because it's a national brand. So are you getting laid a lot as a sports reporter for USA Today? So much so that it's hard for me to have time to write my stories. So do you get a lot of, do you get a lot of fan mail? No. No, this is not, <laughs> that has not been a byproduct of the job. Um, I can't, I can't attribute anything to uh, USA Today. I think I have to credit J-Date more than USA Today. <laughs> That's funny. So do you get your, when you go out and do a story, is it a story that you've come up with or do you have an editor who assigns you the story? Um, it's a balance. I'll suggest stuff. They'll assign me to stuff. It's a great mix. I mean, there's a lot of collaboration and, um, it's it's nice. I think we both understand where our wheelhouse is and what's you know what's right for us and what belongs in different sections of the uh, the sports department. Um, but it's yeah, it's an amazing collaborative effort. And how like, what is a day in the life of uh, of a USA to your life? Like what like what do you do? You have to go to an office. What time do you wake up? Um, no, my office is my kitchen, and uh, yeah, it's about. 10 steps from my bedroom. But uh, the nice thing is it's it's about a 10-minute drive to the actual office. Um, and so I go in for supplies and, you know, doing expenses. But so you could be working at Starbucks or wherever. Yes. And do you have to have a story written a day? No, um, I don't. And it just, you know, sometimes I'm writing daily. There was last week I had nine bylines in six days. Um, now a byline is, is a story. A story. Um, so I had nine bylines and six. Why did they call it a byline? Well, your name's on top of the story. I guess that. Just that, literally that, by the line of the headline? There you go. There you okay. go. I just, seems um, like an odd name. But, go but I could go two or three weeks without writing a story while investigating something, you know, potentially substantial. So it's just, there is that ebb and flow where you're really going hard, you're in the middle of something, and then you pull back and you're looking. So I don't have, you know, columnists might write four columns a week. A beat, writer, a beat writer might write um, five, four or five stories a week. Mine is a little bit more varied and depends on what we're working on, which I like. I, I really enjoy that. And um, your ideas, are they just basically things that first kind of pick your interest and then you go from there and judge with the general audience as well enjoy that? Yeah, I guess so. I don't really think too, I guess I do first um, wait for something to pique my interest and then maybe evaluate whether or not it might appeal to readers. Um, I've got a little bit better idea now than I had a year and a half ago. We're, we're all maybe- Because you just joined the, the paper a year and a half ago, right. correct? But we're more closely monitoring what they call the metrics and that's clicks and time spent on story and, and trying to let it inform us um, about what people are looking for, what people will read, and not to dictate, but just get a little bit better idea of... Um, how do you know? Well, I mean, how do we know? You know, based on I number mean, of times someone clicks on certain stories. But like, uh, let's say, for example, is there a study done that every time the word sex is in a headline, you guys, from a, a large study, you can see, oh, our clicks were up every time we had that headline with the word sex? Is that what you're talking about when you say study them? I'm talking about the number of times people click open a story and share a story, which is maybe more meaningful. It's like, not only did you click it open, 
but you thought it was such a good piece, you put it on Facebook or you tweet it out or you put it on LinkedIn. And that's an indicator that you, know, you didn't just give a glance, you didn't just glance at the first paragraph, but you read it and you thought it was meaningful or interesting and then you passed it along. And that's, that's telling us that that was a worthwhile, potentially worthwhile story and something else we should might, you know, might re-explore or explore further, find other things along those lines. So what would your editor say to you, Josh, to, to give you a good sense that the metrics on a story you've written uh, was was good or you know something they were excited about would they say oh my god congratulations you had three million clicks on your on that article you just wrote and it was shared two million times they'll share the traffic and um you know give me a good indication i know at this point um what the numbers are and what's what are heavy numbers and heavy traffic and what are more modest numbers but yeah they'll, they'll pass it along and that's considered a good number well um, is that secret? No, sadly, this this stemmed from um, a tragic story. But uh, Lawrence Phillips, as you know, allegedly committed suicide um, last week. Famous, former famous running back for the University of Nebraska. And there are two national championship teams later played for the St. Louis Rams and in the NFL for three years. And I've been covering a story and someone called me before it was released and so we someone had someone called you before what was released. Someone um, who was aware of Lawrence's death called me before it was disseminated to other media outlets about his death. About his death, and so we posted it before any other outlet in the country. Was that with your name? It was with my name. So you broke that story. I broke the story. Wow. And later in the day, my editor sent me something that showed that we had 1.5 million clicks on the story. And it, I would imagine that the sports world went berserk. Right. Well, people couldn't find it in other outlets, so it was all over Twitter and Facebook, and that was the means by which people were sharing the story. And the reason that people were so fascinated by the story is because the story had already gotten a lot of attention. This guy, um, Lawrence, had been sentenced to, what, 30-some years in prison for other crimes, and then his cellmate was murdered, and so it if Lawrence were to be tried for that, which it looked likely, he could be looking at potentially a death sentence. Right. So he, in the sports world, there was, he was front and center, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. It was, it was a visible, it was a well-known story at that point. People were following it pretty closely. But no one, what made it so shocking is that um, no one expected he would die no. in prison. Well, I take that back. I think this may be a good point to um, share this that. Hold on, once I put a pin in, I hate this expression, but I know where you're going. <laughs> but let me ask you, when it came down to um, you, get, did when you found out he died, how did that become an exclusive to you? Who did you know in the inside that said, I got to call Josh before I call anyone else? Like, how did you get that scoop? Well, someone um, who was connected with Lawrence, not Lawrence's family, tracked, had been tracking our work. And apparently felt good or thought had favorable feelings about what we'd done over the last six months and thought we'd handle it really fairly. When you say we, you mean you? Me. You um, owned that story at USA Today? Yes. Okay. And um, I think it was sort of a reward for what they thought was fair and um, maybe solid work. And, uh, you know, it was a sound airtight source and so i knew it was ready to go so this source did they text you or call you called me 
And they said, you, you got to be sitting down. You're not going to believe this. Or wh what was the conversation? Fortunately, I was sitting down. <laughs> I really was flabbergasted. I what did really he say or staggered. she say? You're, you're, can you tell us the contact? Um, I can't. No, I can't okay. because I don't want to. I don't want to expose her to any. It's a woman. Retribution. <laughs> <laughs> I just said that to throw you off. Good job. Um, so this is, isn't this the stuff that you just love when, the, when. I, I mean, never had a moment like that. I, never I mean, not the, it's the tragedy. I mean, of course, that's a terrible thing, but just the fact that someone liked your work enough that did they already have your number. They did. And we'd spoken in the past and I hadn't spoken to this person in months. Um, I have to tell you for a journalist, it's always, as perverse as it may sound, it's always a thrill if there's a scoop. And yet at that moment when she told me Lawrence Phillips is dead, it really did stagger me. Now, granted, I mean, I was right back within five seconds and calling my editor and in high speed trying to get the story out. But it was it was shocking news. Now, you can't just put that out, right? I mean, you need to have confirmation from the from the prison. Or do you just trust your source? You don't want to give it any more time because someone else will pick it up. Source was... Sources rock solid. Yeah, rock solid. So you called, what'd you do? You called your uh, editor and said, you're not going to believe this? I, I sent him a text message. said, call me now. Lawrence Phillips is dead. Um, and I was dictating over the phone and chasing down other details and off to the races. And then so uh, your editor was kind of, in a sense, uh, just taking down what you dict You were dictating to your, because you were. it was such an important story. Just get it out. Well, what happened was, and I had to make, Calls. I would call attorneys and coaches and different people we needed we needed reaction from, and I would feed him the material, and he would piece together the story. And I mean, it's go, going back to what I talked about earlier with the collaboration. He's just as trusted an editor as I've ever had, and you have to have that relationship and have someone who can work with you. Does your is your editor a sports editor? Then um, he is. Okay, yeah. Peter Barzilai. He's among the very best. That's great. Uh, so you, um, we said you weren't really surprised. I said how shocking that he would have been dead in prison. And I believe where we, I asked you just to take a break. I think right there you, we were going to talk about how it wasn't, what well, was shocking, it wasn't. No, it was Explain wasn't. this because this is really incredible. It wasn't for us. Um, well, several months ago, I tracked down a couple of coaches, a former coach and a former mentor of Lawrence's and convinced them to give me letters that they'd received from him, and he'd written them from prison. And it was an amazing series of letters that detailed, just harrowing details of prison life. Um, also, by the way, guys, uh, if you subscribe, you'll um, see in the summary, I'll include some links great. To, to these articles, because this one in particular is just, it's fascinating, because the, Lawrence, when you read these letters that he's written to his coaches, He's amazingly articulate. He's warm. He has a sense of uh, kind of a journalistic uh, style of his own. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it's quite incredible. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, the joke was when I saw the letters is I was, I was celebrating because I knew I wouldn't have to do any work. All I had to do was just sort of type in the letters. I mean, he's a terrific writer. Everything I agree with you, echo what you have to say. Um, and it showed the warmth. And I thought it was interesting that while he did discuss his own plight, um, he was very engaged in the lives of others, very interested in life outside of the prison. Um, didn't just pay it lip service, but obviously was tracking what was happening. Uh, just a really fascinating, interesting guy, which made the whole thing sadder. Well, yeah, and, and this is a guy who 
had one of those tragic childhoods without a father figure, living in, in just the harshest of conditions, someone who apparently had gotten saved from that terrible life and and took a turn for the worse in the wor- in, in one of the worst ways imaginable. And it kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's hard to, com- it's hard. Would you agree, Josh, to kind of understand, to, in, in my head it was like, how can this be the guy who's doing all this time? Because he's warm, he's thoughtful, he's articulate. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a mystery almost. It is a mystery, and maybe that's truer of of more people in that situation that there are a little bit more complicated and varied than we give them credit for. Or we we assume, but um, he certainly had many different facets to him, and there was a there was darkness that he would readily admit. Well, he was and, doing 31 years mm-hmm. uh, for driving his car into three teenagers and then a separate crime, which he was later sentenced for assaulting an ex-girlfriend. So he was doing 31 years for those combined crimes. So these were serious offenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so despite how flowery and wonderful the letters were, there were some things that he did that just were horrible. There's no other way to put it, right? Mm-hmm. I think what I remember from those letters is his taking some responsibility or responsibility for he denied the murder charges that never took place, but in terms of driving into the teenagers and assaulting the ex-girlfriend, um, I think that he had shown some remorse. Not that it not that it exonerates him in any way. But. And again, the murder that Josh is referring to is that while serving this time, he, and he got charged with murdering his cellmate. Mm-hmm. And again, you said that you weren't that surprised or you had um, maybe a, an idea something like this could happen and explain that to me and all of, all of them. Well, I've been trying to get a hold of Lawrence's mother for months and um, she apparently read the story we had written about his letters and um, she wrote me an email and in it she attached a letter that Lawrence wrote to her a month before the death of his cellmate. And in it, he wrote that his anger had reached such levels that he feared it was going to result in his death or the death of someone else. And so here we sit in January with his cellmate dead and now Lawrence dead, alleged murder and alleged suicide. And it's just haunting to think um, what we knew. And the thing I was talking to my editor today was, and I wonder whether anybody ever assessed him because when we published these letters, including the letter from his mother, we were subpoenaed by the district attorney's office in Kern County. They wanted the letters as evidence. So clearly everybody was aware in that, in that area involved in the case what existed. So my question is now, if the prison officials were aware that he had sort of insinuated that he might be ready to take his own life and the life of someone else, did anyone assess him? Was he getting help? Um, Do you think he might or his, well, he's gone, but his family could have a lawsuit? There's for negligence? Some, there's been some whispers about calling for an independent investigation, um, but there's nothing concrete. No one's confirmed it. I haven't been able to speak to his mother. She hasn't taken anybody's calls, including mine at this point. Any calls from the media, I should say. So there was a lot of, there was skepticism on the part of his friends and coaches about whether or not he was capable of taking his own life. But, um, you know, I certainly didn't throw it in their face, but I thought back to the letter and, you know, very clearly it indicates that he had thoughts along those lines. Did she make this letter um, available to the prison 
officials prior to Lawrence's uh, suicide? Um, not that I know of. You know, because then how would you know they're uh, not? They're kind of off the hook then, right? Right, and it was published in our paper, and they were subpoenaed by the letters were subpoenaed by the district attorney's office. So you would imagine that the district attorney's office is in contact and working with the prison officials. It's just hard for me to believe that if a letter of that magnitude gets published, people aren't aware of it or aren't taking appropriate action, whatever appropriate action might be. Well, the fact that it was subpoenaed tells you what? Well, they thought it was significant and relevant to the case. But that was after his death. No, 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 no. Oh, it was subpoenaed before. I'm sorry, after the death of a cellmate, but obviously before Lawrence's death. Okay, so they, they knew about the letter prior to Lawrence's suicide, but not prior to his roommate's yes. or cellmate's yes. death. Sorry about the confusion. Or murder. Yes. Okay, now I got it. Makes sense. And uh, where's the story going to go? Is it over? Um, not entirely over. Right now his, uh, his brain was donated to a research group out of Boston that um, studying brains for uh, brain trauma and studying whether or not that contributes to things like suicidality and violent behavior. Um, the testing, I think, has begun. It'll take six months before they have the results back and find out what he may have suffered as a football player and how that may have contributed to his behavior after football. Is there a big takeaway from this, maybe uh, like on a broader scale? Uh, is, it a, is it a commentary about how we treat uh, African-American athletes uh, after their time in the NFL or is there something to learn from this beyond just it's a very tragic story? I don't have a pithy takeaway right now. I mean, I haven't given a lot of thought. I think I've been too immersed in it to have that um, sort of the, the billboard um, slogan, but I, there may be one. I just, I haven't pinpointed it yet. It hasn't, hasn't crystallized in my mind. And you pointed out to me when we were talking about this story uh, off camera and mic that there were three convicted or at least men charged with murder on that uh, Nebraska championship team. Is that right? You had three players, three members of those two championship teams that all faced murder charges. And there was a fourth player who was arrested eight times, convicted four times, and accused of assaulting four women. So it's, it's staggering. I mean, show many other football team in the history of college football that has two players who were charged with murder, much less three. Um, so, yeah, that's what we discovered. Well, I hope you'll keep us up to date. I mean, that's a really fascinating story, I find. you know, Because it, it, it has so many elements to it, sociological to me, as well as, of course, sports. Mm -hmm. Now, you're pitching stuff, ideas to your editor. What's, is there a story you keep pitching that your editor's like, nah, I just don't see it, no, 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 and you're just, you want to do it, you're dying to do it? If so, I was curious what that would be. No, there's a story I'm pitching and I can't find the source for, so hopefully they'll call your 800 number. Um, the story I want to do... And by the is, way, thank you for that pitch. Uh, our 800 number, if you want to give us a call, I'm talking again to Josh Paul. He is a... Um, Josh Josh is a... Um, uh, Josh Peter, sorry. That's Peter Paul in there. <laughs> I did that earlier before we actually speak. Josh Peter. Number here is 800-893-9562. We can take you live calls here. Again, it's 800-893-9562. And go ahead. So the story that really intrigued me is, I have the headline written before the story written, is Death of the American Bookie. And um, 
to me, it's sort of the equivalent of the, uh, the, the book is sort of the equivalent of the typewriter repairman. I mean, this, the trade has almost grown extinct um, with the internet. And there's so much gambling offshore. And so I wonder what's happened to that old time, old school bookie. And I dug around for a long time. I may finally have found a couple of sources. Um, predictably, they are incarcerated. So maybe I'm doing another prison story here. It's going to be <laughs> my new beat, Sports in Prison. <clears throat> um, probably enough to write about. <laughs> exactly. But um, I just, I like the nostalgia of it all. And I want to know how it operated. I just, my, my fantasy was this, um, you know, three-generation family operation where grandpa started the thing and and now Junior was uh, having to apply for jobs at Home Depot because the uh, the bets are drying up. Um, it hasn't materialized, but I, I may finally have a beat on it. But I just, and there's something kind of romantic about the uh, the old school bookie. Isn't it illegal to be a bookie? It is illegal. So maybe that's why you're having a hard time, right? That's definitely without a question. I've had a lot of people say they're not willing to talk and... Um, you know, you reach out on chat rooms, then we'll give their names. Why so. would they be? Why would they? Yeah, especially well, if they're going to keep their identity a secret. Right. What's the when What's I, the plus side for for them? Yeah. Ego. Well, obviously, I haven't made, haven't I haven't pitched too convincingly <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I think absolutely. In fact, you're absolutely right. Ego is it, but also a chance to tell the story authentically, and for them to be the source for it. Um, definitely protect their their identity. And my, my um, intention is not to condemn them or rat them out, but really to sort of understand and, and show what this operation is all about. I mean, again, I sort of see it through this nostalgic lens, and maybe I'm naive, but that's the way I'm envisioning the story at this point. And your editor is on board as long as oh, you can yeah, find the source. Oh, yeah, they were thrilled, but yeah, no one can, I almost give it up, but we found someone the other day at my PR, our key, if we can get them a talk. Okay, great. Now, you talked about the bookie being a bit obsolete, being, uh, you know, out of kind of like uh, our, our world changing and leaving the bookie behind. And it seems like that's happening a lot with the print journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, no one would know that more than yourself, having been a reporter for 20 plus years. I saw in an article in Ad Age magazine eight months ago, the USA editor-in-chief, David Calloway, saying that USA Today could stop publishing a daily print newspaper as soon as in the next five or six years, a daily. What are your thoughts on that? One, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, two, it's a little disconcerting, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I know I'm far more apt to go get my news online now. I do subscribe to the paper, but um, I don't unravel it every day. I don't unwrap it every day. I read online every day. So um, I can't imagine that my taste, the, my habits are entirely different from everybody else's, from others in the country. Um, but it's a little disconcerting because we haven't, I don't think anybody's really figured out a solid business model to carry on without the print product. That there's still a lot of money being generated from print advertising, even though there are fewer people reading the newspaper. And so that's keeping us a lot, keeping a lot of us employed. Um, so still a little unsure about what it's going to look like when, um, that reality, uh, arrives and the paper and the print product is shut down. But, um, you know, I don't think we can sort of move forward blindly and pretend it's not going to happen or that, uh, how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for what was you spell- yourself? 
Oh, me. Well, that's a great question. Um, one, remain you know, relevant or figure out how to um, identify compelling stories, uh, know what people want to read, and execute it quickly. Um, two, the one thing I've tried to do, just getting started with, is um, learning how to tell a story in different forms, whether or not it's video, um, audio. I mean, obviously, graphics are a possibility, but knowing that you have to be more than that traditional reporter. So you're really having to do a lot more work for your money. Oh, we will. Yeah, the young reporters have to. I mean, when you Not that I'm a young reporter. But, <laughs> but when you started, there was no internet. Nothing. So you, you just write your story, get it in. Now, it had its own challenges, but those challenges still exist today. They didn't go away. It's just been added on top of that with the internet and other, the, the new technology, correct? Right, right. You got a tweet and you've got a whatever, Instagram. You, you don't have to, but a lot of people do. I mean, it is, it can be helpful. Um, but the one thing that comes to mind with the old days is, you know, you had a, a scoop at three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, the story, the, the paper wasn't going to bed until 11. So, you know, go get some lunch and maybe go out, shoot some baskets and come back, look at the story again. I mean, now... It's 24-7. You got a scoop? You better get up in the next half an hour. First, someone else might catch you, but it's just such a different, um, you know, it's a frenzied atmosphere at times, which I actually appreciate. I enjoy more than the old days where you had to sit and wait until the morning and the paper hit the porch and you see if you beat your competition. Now, when I look at the news and let's say um, it's simple, like Katrina, you were in Katrina, you were a reporter in New Orleans. Um Sometimes I feel like the story is what it is. And, you know, how do you make it so that you, it, what are you bringing to it, Josh, that makes it a Josh story? I mean, I notice a lot of your stories have a, you really like to have a punch at the end. You like to put a big period or exclamation mark at the end of your story. There, you know, your last line seems to be an important one. And uh, probably that's just basic writing too, but you do a really good job of that. And yeah, and so like, for example, with broadcast news, you know, it would be like, um, it's, it seems like it's just, it is what it is. You know, it's just, uh, oh, like with the Bronco, which I know you wrote about the anniversary of, there was a Bronco chase. And how many different ways can you say it? Do you ever feel like that? Like you're just basically parroting or is it your job is to make sure you're never just parroting? I'm sure I do, but that is what I strive for, is to have something different than everybody else. Um, and I'm not saying that that always happens, but that's one of the things that drives me. Sometimes though, you have to be, I mean, sometimes the story is what it is. But you know what? And that's, that's why I do what I do, is I oftentimes find myself apart from the pack. And that's one of the things that drove me away from games and away from the big events was I, I didn't find much joy or much satisfaction in being part of the group and trying to write the best piece from what that, you know, 2000 people witnessed. Y'all witnessed the same thing that what kind of perspective or humor can you bring to it to make yours distinguish yours the best? That wasn't for me. And I don't know if I, the, I don't think I have the talents to do that. I far preferred leaving the pack. Um, I mean, last year when we were at the Super Bowl. And um, there were thousands of reporters in Arizona. I was in Oakland chasing the story. And that, you know, 
that's what I'm in my element. You know, you guys are all down there at the stadium and, and chasing Tom Brady. Well, guess what? I've got the story up here in Oakland. Um, I'm confused. What was the story in Oakland? The story was Marshawn Lynch. And Marshawn Lynch, the running back for the Seattle Seahawks, who became famous for, you know, saying he was only at this press conference because he had to be. He wouldn't talk to the media. Um, I tracked down his grandpa. And his grandpa, it was, turns out that Marshawn did not have a father present in his life and learn more about his father, but his grandfather was the surrogate father. And his grandfather would make, over the years, these special lemon cakes. And Marshawn loved the lemon cakes. So when he's in college, he'd ask his grandpa to bring extra lemon cakes for his teammates. And so I convinced his grandpa to make lemon cakes that I would deliver Marshawn at the Super Bowl. And so we had him on video, you know, while he's making the cake, he's telling us about Marshawn and the relationship and talking to Marshawn. Say, Marshawn, just tell him about this, this lemon cake. And we got to, I uh, took two cakes to um, the Super Bowl Media Day. The thousands of people around. And Marshawn, predictably, you know, he was at his little podium for about three minutes and said, I'm only here because I got to be here. And then he just scrammed. And we scrambled, like fighting through people and elbowing and and we made a beeline. We we went past security, and I found him in a room, and we just sort of bum rushed him with the cake, and it was it was hysterical. But for me, the gratification of finding that grandpa in the Sacramento area and flying back that cake, and somehow sneaking back and approaching Marshawn is far more satisfying than being in front of Tom Brady with a thousand other reporters and trying to come up with a column that's more clever than the others. I One, I don't think I'm gifted in that sense, and I'm far more interested in chasing something no one else has. Also, uh, you come from a news organization that has the resources and uh, the belief in you to say go after that. Because isn't there a chance you might have gone up to that grandfather and he might not have wanted to speak with you? Oh, yeah. I... I'm extraordinarily, fort extraordinarily fortunate. My, my editors do believe in me, and I've come back at times empty-handed, and it frustrates me to no end. Um, you know, I hate, I hate the thought of coming back with having failed. I'm not so sure they would see it as failure, but for me, it's failure. Now you mentioned video, but of course, USA Today is a print publication, so this was online for the the uh, internet site. It was online. It is online. It's it's hysterical. I don't know. I still laugh when I see it. The video in that case was my editor <laughs> was carrying the cakes. And um, we got there. He pulled out his iPhone. We didn't have, we lost our videographer who went the other direction. So we pulled out his iPhone and we got the video of Marshawn taking the cake with the iPhone. So, you know, you can imagine. So then um, USA Today gets an exclusive. It was exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. No one had this stuff. So Well, that's a great example of owning a story. And making it your own. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, Thank you. Yeah. That makes great sense. And that, speaking of which, I had earlier talked about this White Ford Bronco story you did. This was just a year or so ago. It was the 20th anniversary since OJ and Asa, AC Collings' um, infamous uh, slow uh, chase down the 405. Many of you probably remember OJ was in the backseat of this White Ford Bronco, and everyone kept talking about the White Ford Bronco. There were 95 million TV viewers watching this. The white Ford Bronco became quite popular. Mm -hmm. And then the question was, where's the white Ford Bronco mm -hmm. 20 years later? Now, was this your idea? Well, my editor came to me and he said that they wanted to do something on the 20 year anniversary of OJ Simpson and um, the incident. 
and I was not interested at all. I thought it was just dull, and there were so many players and people. who found a lot of publications tracked down the most prominent people, uh, Marsha Clark and obviously not Johnny Cochran. I actually interviewed uh, Cato really? on the show. Yeah. In fact, I know they found Cato. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And so it didn't interest me, and then I don't know what sparked the thought, but I said, how about the truck? How about the Bronco? And his response was, I mean, with exclamation points, he was thrilled. Thought it would be great. So we started, and it was just, again, dig, 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 dig. Keep making call after call after call, and suddenly you know, the story starts to kind of take shape. Well, what's uh, so the answer, where is it? We need to know now that you, we, we've asked. Do you remember? Well, the search continues, and we think it might be in Florida, but um, it's owned by Michael Poehler, who is a, uh, and quote, unquote, uh, to quote his his niece, a porn king. Um, he, uh, <laughs> what a wonderful thing to get from your niece. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle, uh, what's his first name? Michael Poehler. Uncle Michael. Oh, he's a porn king. <laughs> so um, he produced, yeah, over the years, dozens of pornographic videos. Of course, and this would be films. the guy, you know, like the story just always gets weirder and weirder. Exactly. So you believe he has it down in Florida? Oh, he does own it. I just don't know where he's keeping it. We, we checked his, uh, his old um, condo here in Los Angeles and that uh, parking lot was empty and there was no other place in the area. Ah, I checked with some other friends. They said they didn't know where it was, but um, more than likely in Florida or he's got it in a warehouse somewhere else. But it has been seen, correct? It was seen a couple times, and once it was at a hotel in Las Vegas for the opening of a memorabilia store, and it was later at um, an art gallery in Connecticut, I believe, and then it disappeared again and hasn't been seen since. Now, I love that story. That's the kind of story I just think is fun, and you know, I would immediately want to read that. And it's funny because I was reading the people like the comments, the, the reader comments. And it's funny how people like they'll, if they're going to comment, it's usually because they're, they're unhappy about something. <laughs> and the biggest comment was like, uh, wow, if, you know, if USA Today would do this kind of research on Obama, you know, or this isn't sports, but it is sports. I mean, it's OJ. And right. to me, that's, to me, that's smart journalism in, a, in an odd way. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. And what yeah, do you I, say to those comments? Do you listen? Did you, do you read them? At times, I try not to because usually it's going to be offensive and sometimes vile stuff. Um, <laughs> and I know that, I know it, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, bouquets, flower bouquets there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, you know what? I, I appreciate that. I think I take, I take pride or enjoy again where that story, that the link to sports is pretty thin because why do we have to stay? you know, immersed at the center of sports all the time. Why isn't there room for stuff on the margins or things that aren't necessarily um, you know, traditionally sports-oriented? I mean, if there is that link, I was that's all I needed. Just, just give me a hook. Just give me a link. Give me a tie. Now, young journalists are often portrayed as very idealistic, uh, wanting to change the world, very liberal, um, maybe often naive in a sense in their idealism. I was just curious what you were like when you came out of journalism school. I believe you went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Medill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to graduate school there. Mm-hmm. So we had that in common. You come out of Medill 
and you get your first job. And I believe it was in Anderson, South Carolina. Is that right? Mm -hmm. At a newspaper there doing sports. Who is that guy? And the way I'm, you know, from that kind of his view of the world and what he wants to accomplish and in his career to who you are today. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Um, just much more naive and back uh, then or now. Back then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you never know. You'll have to ask him from back then. <laughs> um, but I just thought I would make it in the business sheerly on you know writing talent and didn't have a great understanding of what made a story compelling. And uh, I remember being up in New York and um, I stopped by the New York Post and I had a brief meeting with their sports editor. And he said, do you write well, but, uh, you know, do you know how to report? And he asked me questions like, okay, if I gave you the net speed, who are the first people you're going to make contact with? And I really had no idea. What's the net speed? I'm sorry. The, the New Jersey Nets, now the Brooklyn Nets. And he was saying... Okay, if I gave you the job covering the Brooklyn Nets, who's your first source you're going to develop? Who are you going to start talking to try and make sure you've got, you know, connections with this team? And I don't know. And he told me that... Um, Can I guess? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it would be one of the assistant coaches. Yeah, I think so too. I just mean, because they're just underneath and they're going to be, their ego is going to be stroked that you want to get to know them maybe. Not only that, you may be of service to them. Oh. Give, them a little, give them a little pub occasionally. I mean, you know, a kind word or, you know, okay. portray them favorably. I mean, they are looking to make that jump. Good point. They need you. They need people to help catapult them. The head right. coach has no use for you for the most part. Right. They're usually dodging media. Right. But those assistant coaches know all. And they're usually younger. Yeah. So and that makes a little... little naive on their part. Right. And a little more ego. And a little more driven to climb the ladder, like you said. Yeah, so you're hired, covering the Nets starting tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, that's that's what you've learned over the years, among other things, I'm just sure. Just to dig. Just to dig. Um, like, what did you think you thought before it was just being a good reporter in the sense of being a good writer, the structure of a good story, of right, how to put a story right. together? I was not a great reporter. In fact, I remember a story I wrote early on, and I just couldn't figure it out, and I rewrote it and wrote it and rewrote it about 100 times, and it finally dawned on me. I don't have a story here. I don't have the material. I wish that, I wish someone had been able to tell me this on day one rather than waiting three years. Not understanding that unless you are a an exceptional reporter, it's doubtful you're going to be able to write a great story. I mean, reporting serves the writer, I think. So reporting in this definition of a reporter means digging, getting sources, getting the facts that others perhaps aren't. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Creating relationships. Exactly. Isn't it hard when you change towns? Like you were in New Orleans, I believe prior to our broadcast, you told me you'd been there eight years. So you develop all these great relationships with probably, uh, you know, different sports organizations. And then you come out to LA and you don't know anyone. Isn't it like starting from scratch? Um, or do you use some of those New Orleans relationships to get you relationships here? In well, words, answer, friends of friends. and Answer the first question, yes and no. I mean, one, we did some pretty tough reporting in New Orleans. And so um, we didn't have, at the end, maybe our relationships with the, New, with the New Orleans Saints and some of the other teams in that area were not great. Um, it was a lot of scrutiny and stories they were not happy about. And so almost to have, um, you know, almost starting over, which isn't a bad thing, to be able to build new relationships. I do, I do still have contacts that I can draw on. 
um, in places I've worked in the past, but I think it was helpful to start fresh. Um, and in a not, way, it could be fun too. Yeah. Oh, definitely. To, to start you know, exploring all over again. Um, but it was interesting. It was a tough transition to go from regional reporter to national reporter, trying to understand what that what that meant and what stories to go after. It was. It took about a oh, solid six months before I had my feet. Do you have a legal department look over your articles prior to their publication? Occasionally, not often, but if they're sensitive, yes. So looking at your bio, uh, you start out from Medill, you go straight to a small newspaper in Anderson, South Carolina. You're there doing sports. Then you move to Columbia, South Carolina after a couple of years? About four. Four years. And is it in Anderson where you really learned to be a writer? Uh, at the tail end, yes. Probably the last year I really started to develop. Do you remember what you were making back then? Uh, my first salary was, I think, $16,500. And that, was a, that wasn't a lot of money even for back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was considered bad money <laughs> 20 years ago, correct? Well, that was... I'm not insulting that you. That was 1990. At 1990, I'm, I'm almost certain I made 16500 a year. Yeah, you know, when I was a TV reporter in Macon, Georgia, which was my first job after Medill, uh, it was something like that too. And I remember that I had a review and they said that they were thrilled with me and they wanted to give me the biggest raise they've ever given. And it was another 35 cents an hour. Oh my God. Yeah, it was a very exciting moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? So you go from there to uh, Columbia, South Carolina. You're there for a year and a half. Then you go to Memphis, you're there six months, then you go to New Orleans and you stick for around for eight years. Mm-hmm. You leave after Katrina mm-hmm. because you've got a child, correct? Right. I believe I, you've told, we discussed that earlier again off camera. You move then to is LA, your hometown, mm-hmm. and you worked at Yahoo Sports for three years. Right. Is that right? Right. Online. There is no print. Yahoo Sports. Right. I actually, in between... Um, in between- but make sure you talk in the... In between New Orleans and um, Yahoo Sports, I had written a book on bull riding. So I was busy with that, and we were actually working on a reality show and lost out to Ty Murray with CMT. You what? I said we lost out to Ty Murray and T- on, on what CMT. What do you mean? Oh, we had, a, um, we had a promo video, and we'd gone out. We'd shot these guys on the road. We'd been traveling with, the, these bull riders? with the bull riders. At the same time, unbeknownst to us, Ty Murray, the king of cowboys, who's a hellacious bull rider, put together this idea, or someone put it together for him, celebrity bull riding. Mm. And he won out over us. Um, A lot of work, but uh, it worked out with Yahoo Sports anyway. So was that a big adjustment for you to go from print to online reporting for Yahoo Sports? I'm a big adjustment, but to go from regional newspaper to national newspaper with different expectations, um, I mean, that sort of compounded the, the challenge. It was not easy to make that transition. It was a, it was a rough couple of months, but um, things finally worked themselves out. A great editor sort of helped me along the way. The, uh, one of th- when I was looking at the most read news sources online, Google News and Yahoo News, we're very high up there, if not like one and two, close to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing then that means Yahoo Sports would be right there with them. Is that right? I think so. So that was a really uh, huge job for you, wasn't it? It was a big job. We were sort of, yeah, we were coming along at a time where the, the department, um, the numbers were exploding, really taking off. And I was lucky. It was a part of an incredible crew. 
Um, I don't know if you remember a story about Reggie Bush having to give back the uh, the Heisman Trophy for some improprieties when he was at USC. And I was working with some of the guys who spearheaded that project. And just there was immense talent there. Um, Mike Garrett, who was the athletic director at the time at USC, when some of those stories broke, mockingly asked Yahoo. And, you know, within um, six months, he was in the middle of a you-know-what storm. And uh, everybody knew who Yahoo Sports was. So it was cool to be part of that. You, this is a real interesting part of your career. Uh, you left the business. I did. And I that did. was after Yahoo Sports, three years you quit, and you decided to go into what? Mental health. Um, That's I had, a hard right turn. <laughs> isn't it? It is. I guess to offer a little context, I had uh, gotten some counseling and found it to be transformative. Personal counseling. Uh-huh, personal counseling and found it to be transformative. What were you dealing with? Like depression, um, the, that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, depression, anxiety, and... Okay. Um, and decided that this is something I wanted to help give other people. And I'd grown kind of burned out of journalism. And it's, it's definitely something that can happen if you go too hard and a variety of other reasons. Um, so I went back to school, got my master's of social work at USC. And I was a psychiatric social worker for about 18 months. Um, started to lose its luster. I was, my population I was working with was older adults with... Um, severe and chronic mental illness. It was a lot of psychosis and it was draining and um, the clients just weren't really suitable for traditional talk therapy, which is what interested me. And so I'd gotten a couple of nibbles for freelancing and I wrote a couple of things and the bug was back. I mean, I felt that adrenaline and I was just sucked in all over. Um, USA that, Today came calling? First, a, a site called Bleacher Report which is owned by Turner. That's a huge sports site. It is. And then um, I had a bunch of buddies at uh, USA Today who came calling, and I ended up working, catching on with them full-time. But um, Do you think being a sports writer in particular is kind of like, when you say the bug, it's kind of like being an actor or you, know, you hear a lot of people in Los Angeles here talking about the, you know, the, the acting bug. They, it's almost like a plague. Like they can, It's a curse they act. As if it is, you know, it's like, you know, they they, they have to just succumb to it. It's 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 almost like, you know, they, they have no choice in the matter. Is that how you feel? It's um, like you're calling, and you just at some point you just go, okay, I'm I'm gonna do this. Mm-hmm. It sounds similar. I, I I haven't really thought about that, and I haven't. I I know I know the expression, but I haven't talked to actors about it and that phenomenon. But I don't think it's altogether healthy. Believe me. But what isn't? I mean, that rush we get and the adrenaline, whatever, whatever sucks you back in. Um, I mean, it feeds you. It is who you are. I'm not sure it's altogether healthy, but as you said, I mean, you've got these actors who say, you know what? I accept it. This is me. This is who I am. Um, so, you know, maybe it deserves a little bit more, uh, I don't know, self-examination, but yeah, I mean, the rush is, the rush is almost too much to give up. The rush of what? Chasing a story, breaking a story. I mean, I being just, the first, being the first, I mean, there's no, um, there's no hint of that kind of adrenaline 
certainly not in social work where you're sitting with people and their emotions and your emotions and it's it's a noble thing and it takes great skill but you know for me the drug is the adrenaline and um i mean journalism is the place i found i can get it regularly um so there it is i'm a adrenaline a sports adrenaline junkie <laughs> yeah now what is the dream for you what would be the ultimate goal in all of this for the long time, for the longest, the uh, the fantasy has been a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and as we were talking earlier, I was part of the uh, Pulitzer Prize. This is before we actually did the show right. in the lobby. We were talking, yeah. Um, at the New Orleans Times-Picune, our coverage in the aftermath of Katrina won a Pulitzer Prize. And I had a story among 10 that were submitted for that prize. So, yeah, I mean, it takes satisfaction knowing that my work in some way contributed um, but I would like my own. I mean, whether or not it's someone partnering up with someone. But yeah, I dream of, I was raised on all the president's men and Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein. And now you've got Spotlight. I mean, that's that's what drives some of us. Spotlight, the feature film. Yeah. Correct. When you started, was what was the goal? Um, hmm. I wanted to be the best, col best sports columnist in the country. I wanted to be the modern day Red Smith, but that is so far gone from my consciousness. <laughs> is Red Smith your ultimate model no in fact my ultimate growing up was um there was a more of a humorist scott oster wrote for the los angeles times and also jim murray who was a pulitzer prize winner um sports columnist for the la times those are more heroes but in the pantheon of sports writers red smith was considered the best of the best i mean again his his writing transcended sports he was just such a craftsman mm -hmm. such a wordsmith if people want to get a hold of you uh, how would we? How would they do that? Because we're almost out of time here. Um, well, I mean, they can email me, which is Josh L Peter eleven at. Is that the number eleven or written out? Um, the number eleven. Okay. Um, at gmail dot com. So Josh L Peter eleven at gmail dot com. Okay, or great. call your eight hundred number. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything that you wanted to add that we haven't discussed here? Because I, I hate to, uh, I feel like I've got a lot more I could talk to you about, but I want to give you an opportunity. Um, I can't. Nothing up top of my head. I mean, is I would like to finish with this because of the nature of social media and and technology there'll always be a spot for a guy like you, do you think? Well, I was very worried about this recently. And um, I <laughs> sent my editor an email um, and uh, sort of expressing my concerns about the future and my future. And um, he responded that... <laughs> um, when it all shut down at USA Today, I'd be the one turning out the lights, which I thought was, you know, obviously I was appreciative of the praise and the compliment. So I don't think I'll be turning the light out, but I feel like I've got a job for at least the next five years, <laughs> and then I'll be co-hosting this podcast. With you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you definitely uh, do a great job, and I encourage all of you watching and listening to check out Josh. You can Google him. Find him on USA Today. Um, he's really a, a really talented writer and just a great guy. Thank and you. Yeah, I really uh, thank you so much for coming down here. It was just great. Appreciate and, you having me. Yeah, and I hope you find that bookie. You know? <laughs>
at least to get a bet down. Yeah, and want to thank all of you guys for watching and listening. And uh, please subscribe. Again, it's Bitcoins. It's a fair question. And I uh, hope to see you again real soon. Thanks again, and thank you. Thanks, Brett. Yeah. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question.